Hello, and welcome to Returning to Us, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips for how to hack your brain, build and strengthen relationships, and to teach people how to recognize and neutralize their emotional states. I'll discuss emotional intelligence and regulation, how food and exercise impact the body and brain, and share lessons from my own lived experiences. I'm Lauren Spiegelmeyer, the founder of The Behavior Hub, which is an organization that works to reduce the stressors of raising and educating children through a brain and biology-based lens. In these episodes, I'll share stories and strategies from my own life, work, and research, answer listener questions, and wrap it up with a try-it-at-home tip. Decades worth of information in just minutes. You ready? I talk a lot about stress, stress management, abuse, the effects of abuse, all these different things. And one of the things that always catches adults, mostly teachers and and parents too, off guard is when we talk about emotional abuse. And I've talked about this in a previous episode, what is considered emotional abuse? And we go down through that list and talk about a lot of things and people are, you can see on their faces, just like appalled that they're, they're doing some of these things and not intentionally, not knowingly. For example, a lot of times people use threats to get kids to comply. Threatening a child prolonged, ongoing can can be a form of emotional abuse. It can do a lot of damage long-term. Why? Because a child constantly feels like their power and control is being taken from them. Yes, kids are (laughs) under the authority of adults and parents and, and educators and they also need to be shown some respect because it's how they learn respect. So the biggest thing I say with educators and teachers is if you don't know that you're offering threats because it's what your parents or your educators or your teachers did, and you're just reusing a a skill that's ingrained in you from it being used with you, I would really just think about uh, how that has impacted you. And now that we know that threats are and can be emotionally abusive, getting away from those and using more appropriate tactics to get kids to respond and listen and behave. The biggest thing though, is when we talk about threats, uh, being a form of emotional abuse, it abuse is the improper treatment of a thing. And that can come from a traumatic event where it's like one big explosion or one big happening. Uh, So emotional abuse in terms of threats wouldn't necessarily be traumatic. But what it would fall into the category of is if you're using it constantly, frequently, daily, then it's stress chronically uh, for a sustained period of time. And that's where damage can be done. So a lot of times traumatic stress or chronic stress can display some of the same effects because although one might be one incident or a few incidents that are really, really, really intense, the other may not be as significantly impactful, but because it's impacting such for such a period of time or across a period of time, it can do similar damage. Ultimately, we just need to be aware of these things and we need to do better. And you can't fault yourself for not knowing. There's a really great um, strategy I learned years ago, which is 
if you did not intentionally harm, harm, if you did not intentionally cause someone harm, then sadness is the right emotion to feel. You're sad that you did that. If you did intentionally choose to cause harm, then you should feel guilty. But we shouldn't be feeling guilty when we didn't try to harm someone. So I I see the guilt on people's faces when I teach them about emotional abuse and threats. Guilt is not a heavy emotion they need to carry. They just need to feel sad that they didn't know. And the best part is now they know. So now they can they can elicit change. And if you want to and feel it's that you can always go back and repair. You can always go back and apologize. I didn't know. Now I know. I'm not going to do that anymore. And if I do do that, catch me. Let me know. Let me know I'm doing it because it's going to take some time for me to learn this new language and new way of being. Don't be too hard on yourself. The beautiful thing about stress management, chronic stress, traumatic stress is that we know we can recover from it with the right strategies, with the right supports, with the right changes and awareness of, of need to change. Our chemical makeup can change. Our brain can adapt. Our, our, we've got new neurons and new cells developing that can change the way the brain works, change the way the emotional brain works, and we can fix or correct the existing damage. But what I want to go into today is what are the effects of abuse? And that's any type of abuse, sexual, physical, emotional, mental abuse, a traumatic event, a chronic stressed out human being. What are the effects of this? There are lots and these are based on research and they are not an all-encompassing list. They are just the ones most commonly seen, especially in kids. Kids who are chronically stressed or abused often experience anxiety and or depression. Think about the last two to three years. It has been very stressful, chronic stress. Anxiety is on the rise. That's not shocking because the body is so overwhelmed with stressful, fearful feelings that causes anxiety. And you probably have more people depressed as well because you have people grieving the past, grieving what they no longer have because of what has happened the last couple of years. So anxiety and depression on the rise. Anger. Rage, like deep frustration, kids not knowing how to manage their emotions because they aren't being taught and they didn't maybe have to learn the past. Uh, Emotional regulation is not so much innate. There's some biological factors to it, but especially in today's world where there are lots of stressors and lots of sensory components, we need to be taught uh, how to manage our emotions and we aren't. And because we are so overwhelmed and we feel like everything is so out of control, anger is what results. So anxiety, depression, anger. You get kids with flashbacks too. Flashbacks can be like a flashback to a traumatic event. It can be any type of sensory thing that triggers that. So it could be touch. It could be smell. It could be taste. It could be something they see or they hear. Uh, Lots of things that can trigger a flashback. And flashbacks are kind of hard to recognize, label, see, because they're not always so obvious that the child's having a flashback. Here's a great example. Working in a four-year-old, working with a four-year-old in a Head Start classroom, and she had this moment where she would frequently throughout the day kind of pause. Her eyes would dart back and forth, and then she would come out of that in a state of like manic rage. And the teacher suggested to the family that they get her tested for seizures because her eyes were darting back and forth. 
Well, when you seize and come out of that, you're typically very exhausted. It takes a lot of your, your energy out of your body. You wouldn't normally come out of a seizure very manic. So I said, I, I feel like she's having a traumatic like reliving of an experience, like a flashback. But at that point, there was no known or shared trauma. So I said to the teacher to have someone connect with the family, inquire, build relationship, and see if we can get to the bottom of what's causing this extreme stress. What we learned is the child was abused and it was never reported. It was never shared. And often the flashbacks would come when the lights were turned off, which was a a technique used to get the class quiet. Well, the the trauma happened at night in bed, uh, this little girl. So when the lights went off, that was the trauma trigger. That was the flashback trigger that sent her into this flashback. And her eyes are darting back and forth. She wasn't seizing. She was just rapidly reliving that memory. And then out of that, memory came this state of of just chaos and then caused the room to become very chaotic. So the good news about recognizing that is one, we can stop the trigger. We don't need to use the lights anymore to, to get attention. And now we can work on her, work with her on some trauma based techniques to start healing some of that damage done. Anxiety, depression, anger, flashbacks. You've got kids with low self-esteem, low self-confidence and lack of self-awareness. So think about like, kids with no body control, kids that say they can't, uh, they don't feel like they can do these things. They don't believe in themselves. They don't feel like they have value or worth. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, even parents who are overly, overly involved in many different things or their work, uh, there's almost a level of neglect that comes in there where kids need to build these attachment bonds. Their parents aren't available because they're involved in too much. And then it becomes neglectful. I mean, even if they have multiple kids involved in multiple things, do do the family systems ever sit down and just connect? And if they don't, that attachment bond isn't built. Those relationships that we are like need for our human biology aren't connected. And because of that, we don't feel valued. And because we don't feel valued, we don't think that we can do things or do them well or do them right. So we develop really low self-esteem and low self-confidence. And when kids say they can't do something, it's not always escapism. It's not always just trying to get out of the thing that people want them to do. Sometimes they just genuinely feel like they can't do it, even if it's something they've done in the past. And it could just be they don't have this like internal energy or motivation to do these things because their their body is so overwhelmed from trying to get other bigger needs met, the relationship needs, the attachment needs. So when a child doesn't want to do something, my first thought is not, you know, how do I get them to do that? They need to do it. They're not listening. I'm trying to escape it. My thought is, why do they not want to do this? Why do they think they can't do this? What is underneath that? Because naturally, kids want to behave. They want to listen. Why? Because eons ago, we were raised in hunter-gatherer. Our brains developed in these hunter-gatherer communities. We had to be connected to and a part of that community to survive. If you get too far outside that community or you're you're ousted, you die. So our brains were developed to want to be included, to want to be connected. Therefore, it wants to listen and learn and behave because it doesn't want to be ousted. It doesn't want to be kicked out because it's dangerous when you're kicked out. Uh, So even though it may not be like the the physical... um, reality of our lives today, it is still in our brains. It is still the way our brains develop. So it is internally still the way that we think and we feel. So if kids are responding that way, I'm I'm getting curious about why that is. And then I'm going to try and build motivation to get the thing done. 
for example, for young kids, this is so easy. When kids don't feel like they can do something or don't have the motivation to do something, I add humor. I make it fun. I make it a game. I make it interesting. So say I'm at home. I want them to help me fold laundry or put laundry away. They don't want to do it. Not not a super like motivating task. And it could be that they're escaping it because they want my attention and I have to give them my attention if they say no. It could be that they are just too tired because they had a long day at school. There's too much going on and their bodies aren't as resilient or uh, they don't have as much stamina as we have as adults. So how do I build motivation with that? I make it a game. I maybe pretend I'm a post man or post woman and I have a delivery of laundry that needs to go to you know, I make up whatever their room is called and I ask them or I, you know, solicit them to come grab their delivery and send it to their room. And because I'm asking them to deliver it in this fun, interactive, post-like way, instead of just telling them to go put it away, they're much more motivated because it's a fun activity and game. It's a point of connection with them and me because it's it's adding humor. So lots of ways to get around some of these things. And, and by doing so, by adding humor, you are connecting, you're building that connection, you're building the relationship, so therefore you are healing this effective abuse. Then you've got kids who are perfectionists. Again, go back to that. I'm not worthy. I'm not enough. I'm not getting the attention I need. I'm not getting the relationships I need. So if I do everything right, if I do everything perfectly, I do all the things, I will be worthy of the love. I'll be worthy of getting my parents' attention or my teacher's attention or whoever it is. So these perfectionistic behaviors. And then because of that, there's a fear of failure. You want it to be so perfect that you're afraid of even getting started because you're afraid that you're going to fail. Or there's so much anxiety around the, the fear of doing it wrong that you won't do it. So perfectionism and fear of failure are huge, huge ones right now. And that stems usually from a worthiness, attachment, attention, need. We got more and more kids acting out sexually, especially young kids, and it might be to get attention or it might be because they've experienced trauma or abuse and they are just acting out what they've experienced. Um, and it could be completely subconscious. It could be something they've seen on TV in the person, whatever it may be, but it is a, a trigger. It is or not trigger it is a, a flag for me. When I see perfectionistic behaviors, fear of failure, acting out sexually, or any of the ones I listed above, low self-esteem, low self-confidence, lack of self-awareness, flashbacks, extreme anger, depression, rage, anxiety. It's a, it's a flag for me. Flag, what's going on? Something something is needed. And it doesn't always mean, that, again, that there was trauma, but it might mean that there's chronic stress and we need to address that because that's going to keep chipping away at the body's system. All right, three more. Kids who are exposed to abuse often have unrealistic guilt, especially around divorce. They think it's their fault. They think they've done it. Uh, and they just hang and hold onto this really heavy guilt if it's all my fault. Uh, and kids eventually think too that when they don't get an adult's attention as much as they may need it, that it's it's their fault. They feel guilty. I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm not right. This is my fault. Uh, so there's a lot of guilt. Uh, and that guilt stems to other areas. I don't have friends because I, I don't do well in school because I, it's all on them. And it's not always the case. They need good support. They need good systems. They need how to be, they need to be taught how to deal with life. Life is tough, but less tough when you know how to handle it. Another self-harm. We're seeing more and more kids with self-harm and they're, they're kind of resulting to that because they don't know what else to do. It's a coping mechanism. They are feeling disconnected, so it might help them to feel alive. Uh, they might feel like they don't want to be alive anymore, um, but usually 
kids who self-harm, uh, it's almost like not fully conscious behavior. And, and it's just a way of trying to like f- feel again, because they feel so numb, numbed out. So obviously that's one you need to watch for and be aware of and get uh, medical help with, therapeutic help with, because uh, that one's quite alarming. And you'll see that too with younger kids. You'll see they may not um, do some of the things that you know we know teens to do, but they might hit themselves or hurt themselves or pinch themselves or pull their hair. A lot of those things are just signs that kids are really stressed out, could be anxious, um, could be a, a certain trigger that causes it, but they are signs to me that I need to intervene. And the last is eating disorders. So eating disorders can be, you know, what we know, like anorexia, bulimia, but eating disorders can also just be kids who are overly, overly, overly picky. And that's because so many of their parts of their lives feel out of control. So eating, uh, choosing what you eat or what not to eat is is a really easy way to keep control. It makes you feel good. It makes you feel empowered. So trying to work with kids to get that underlying need met and then maybe the eating disorder will go away or to work on you know things around food therapeutic approaches to expanding the diet okay list of effects of abuse anxiety depression anger flashbacks lack of self-awareness low self-esteem low self-confidence perfectionism fear of failure acting out sexually unrealistic guilt self-harm eating disorders. If you see any or multiple of these, they are trigger warnings to you that something is going on underneath the behavior and we need to get help and and address it and start doing the repair work. Okay. So when kids misbehave and we don't like it, the goal is always to find what's underneath the behavior. I have a whole course I developed on this five needs course. What's under behavior? Find the root cause, address the root cause, behavior goes away. Really simple, really straightforward, really easy to learn, really easy to implement. There's one big area I want to talk about because when these effects of abuse come into play and we see you know, these behaviors and things, we tend to want to stop the behavior, but we don't think about what's underneath the behavior and the pain that it's causing. And the result is punishments and consequences that just do further damage. So there's a quote by Dan Siegel. It says, any brain scan, relational pain that is caused by isolation during punishment can look the same as physical abuse. So is alone in the corner the best place for your child? What does this mean? Relational pain caused by isolation during punishment means timeout, means suspension, expulsion, in-school suspension. It means punishing a child by isolating them from the rest of the group. It can look the same as physical abuse in a brain scan. It is incredibly harmful and hurtful. It is just deepening, further further deepening psychological scars. It is not the best approach to consequences and punishment and behavior. There are much, much better examples. What are the better examples? Take my <laughs> self-regulation, emotional regulation, and needs courses or go and listen to the podcast or the blog posts on these topics and you'll learn more about what to do in response to behavior instead of just issuing a punishment or a consequence because... My belief is kids need an education around emotions. And when they have that education, they do better. The only reason they are not doing better is because they don't know better. And they cannot be blamed and punished for not knowing better when they haven't been taught it first. So we need to teach them. And then if they continue to do it, then we can talk about what what the natural consequences are. But we at least need to give them a chance first by educating them better. 
Okay, Woza. Let's go to today's listener question, which is what do I do with a child who is mouthy or using foul language? <laughs> oh man, I see this one a lot in early childhood, and people freak out when kids drop the F bomb or you know say something they definitely don't want to hear. In fact, I had to laugh. It just happened uh, with family not so long ago. They have, I think, a three-year-old who is in a daycare program and chucked his shoe and dropped the F-bomb and they were mortified. And I, don't, I don't even know if the, the, that word is used in the household or not. I'm going to guess not or not frequently. Um, but what probably made the, the instance worse is freaking out over the child using the the language. So um, making a big deal out of that it's just going to make it worse because the child's going to know that's a big no-no. And when they use that word, they're going to get lots and lots of attention. And if attention is what they're seeking, they're going to, they don't know exactly how to, to find it or to get it, use that word. So my thought, my approach is teach them, teach them the words, teach them the words early. So they know them, so they hear them. So they know when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate to use those words. And it may never be appropriate in your family and that's fine, but they need to be taught the words and when is good and bad to use them the expectations around them we don't teach kids expectations we just hide them we shield them from the thing well they're going to hear the thing or see the thing somewhere whether it's in public at school from other kids somewhere it's going to come out so my thought is better to teach them up front and teach them when and where to use them what are my expectations and then when it happens my next thing is what is underneath it they didn't say it just to say it. They said it. There's some reason. They might want attention. They might be emotionally dysregulated. So I'm going to find what the reasoning is underneath it. And then I'm going to make sure that need is met so they don't need to use the word to get the need met. If that still doesn't work, I might come up with some alternatives they could use with them. What are some words that you could say when you feel this way that it's not this word? Because in this word, we don't use in our house. So let's come up with a funny, silly, different replacement word. What's the alternative? That still doesn't work. I go to strong feelings. I state my strong feelings when a child uses that language. I state that makes me feel uncomfortable or that makes me feel insert whatever emotion word you feel. Why does that work? It doesn't always work right away. It won't hit them right away. But down down the road in a couple hours, in a couple of days, it will. Because if we go back to this hunter-gatherer idea where we were connected to our community, when you don't listen and you don't behave and you you, you get ousted from your community, you, you are in danger. So biologically, we want to be a part of the group. We want to listen. We want to learn. We want to behave. We want to be included. When I state my strong feelings, you are making me feel, or I, I actually won't say you are making me feel. I will just say I feel. Um, because kids don't really have the power to make us feel. We have our own power over our feelings. So they can influence our feelings, but they can't make us feel. So I try to be really careful when I say, I feel not you are making me. Uh, so the, the feelings words, by me describing my strong negative feeling, it's telling them, I don't want to be near you right now. I don't like that. It doesn't make me feel good. And because I don't feel good and I don't want to be close to you right now, I'm going to pull my attention, my energy away. And you're now, you know, on that exterior you are now kind of removed from the group you're not included so when they feel that feeling of like being out it doesn't feel good so eventually it's going to shift and shape their behavior and change it or they'll stop doing the thing that makes them feel out and they'll learn to do the thing that makes them feel in because it teach them that thing 
which might be the alternative, which might be when it's appropriate to use the word, which might be the expectation, whatever it may be. But when they have the tools to do well, they will do well. Okay, that's foul language. Works for any group. You just, how you talk about it with the child looks different depending on the age. To wrap up the show, I'm going to share with you my chat home tip, which is use water as a calming technique. Drink it, see it, touch it, feel it, hear it. Water music, water in the form of a visual, water in the form of a video, uh, drinking it again, uh, touching it, playing in it, any form of water is calming. If you feel dysregulated or your kids are dysregulated, bring in water of some sort. That's why baths and showers, swimming, all of it can be really regulating. So bring in water as a calming technique. And that's it for today's episode of Returning to Us podcast. Don't forget our try at home tip, which is use water as a calming technique. And if you are looking for more support in the areas of stress, trauma, behavior, and or the brain and how kids learn, I'd love to be a part of your learning journey. The Behavior Hub offers a range of supports from coaching to online courses to group training programs, even university credit for our courses. So if you want to learn more about any of this, shoot me a text 717-693-7744. If you have any burning questions you want me to answer on a future episode, just email me at podcast at thebehaviorhub.com. Until next episode, I am Lauren Spiegelmeyer and thanks for joining me.